You're listening to Conservation Connection. Presented by Last Chance Endeavors. I'm Chance. I'm Sarah Catherine. We're a husband and wife team running a wildlife education nonprofit focused on connecting students to their environment. Each week, here on Conservation Connection, we do just that by introducing you to the groundbreaking science and conservation work that's happening every day across the globe. We talk to professionals working to protect our planet and ask them about their career, their current projects, their wild and crazy stories from the field, and everything in between. This episode is a collaboration with the Sun Valley Forum in Sun Valley, Idaho, and was made possible through a generous donation by the Nancy P. and Richard K. Robbins Family Foundation. The Sun Valley Forum is an intergenerational meeting of forward-thinking professionals that come from a diverse range of disciplines. These experts are on the cutting edge of what's happening in the fight for our future, and they've all come together at the Sun Valley Forum to share ideas and collaborate on solutions for a greener tomorrow. Let's get to the show. Alrighty, guys, welcome to another episode of Conservation Connection. We are so excited to be here in Idaho at the Sun Valley Forum, and we are very excited to be sitting down with Jennifer Bushman, who is the co-founder of Fed by Blue. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. We're super happy to have you here. We actually got to meet Jennifer last night and chat a little, so we're so glad that we could get you on the show. Why don't we just start with what exactly is Fed by Blue? Fed by Blue is an impact campaign that really does start to emphasize the importance of blue foods to the future of our food system. And blue foods are not blueberries. <laughs> uh, they are actually the aquatic animals and plants that come from our waterways. And that can be rivers and streams and wetlands as well as our oceans. So both freshwater and marine-based foods and how they really can contribute to a future of food system that's going to be more climate change resilient. And that's a really important conversation to be having right now because of just how reliant so much of the world's population is on the protein and the foods that come out of the oceans in particular, but also our freshwater sources, right? I mean, it's actually pretty astounding. We know right now that we are farming on almost all of the arable land on the planet. And it's time for a big idea. And that big idea is 71% of the planet, our water. We actually have more foods that come from our fresh water than we do from our marine base. Right now, only about 2% of all of our food system comes from our ocean. Really? So there's a lot of opportunity to merge what we say at Fed by Blue is to bring together ocean production and ocean protection. And of course, that trickles to out to all of our waterways and the impact that they ultimately are going to have. And if you think about it one step further, they're much more climate change resilient. They're not um, subject to drought. They're not subject to issues around rainfall or temperature. We can actually, if we're talking about aquaculture, cite different species that are resilient to that changing environment, and in a lot of ways, contributive as well. I mean, seaweed is being proven to lower acidification in the waters that they're grown in. Because so of the carbon really, capture, right? Um, there are two different things that are going on, actually, with seaweed. One is the natural sort of breaking off and falling off of seaweed from either wild stocks or from reared seaweed, right, the growing of it, and that will fall to to the ocean floor, and it will sequester more carbon than trees. Once you pick it to eat it, instead of what's fallen off to the deep ocean, then you, of course, release the carbon. Right. So there is a natural opportunity there, probably more opportunity around 
feed systems for animals. We know that by adding certain types of seaweed to feed, you can lower methane mitigation. We also are looking at things like biochar and bioplastics. So there will be contributive. But the more important thing is that actually there's a halo effect around these farms, particularly when you farm things like oysters and bivalves with the seaweed. This halo effect is lower acidification in the ocean, lower nitrogen levels, and returning the rest of the ecosystem into balance because of that. It really kind of reminds me a lot of sort of the three sisters idea in traditional land-based agriculture where you grow, what is it, squash, corn, and beans together? Correct. Right? It is very much like the Indian triad. It's that we have to be able to not just monocrop the oceans. There have been huge issues with monocropping on land, as we know, and that's not going to work either. What I say is, is that particularly as it relates to blue foods, it's really a chance to build this food system the way we want it to look. And so it, of course, has to contribute protein. So we know mussels, those bivalves, oysters are going to be really important. But if you go further up the food chain, and even if you had a finfish farm that was part of that, for example, you know, some type of a whitefish, let's just say a branzino, as you get higher up the food chain, there are going to be these ecosystem benefits to both the wild stocks as well as the farmed fish in this environment. And, and I want to emphasize the fact that this is happening now. This is not something that we're waiting to happen. And things like seaweed and kelp farms can be grown in the course of under a year. You you know, it will grow feet and feet every several months. So it's like we can start feeding communities immediately on farms that can be put into some of these, I guess, some of these areas where we want to really talk about nutrition, nutrition-packed foods, and blue foods are known as being the most, of course, nutritious of all of the foods that we produce. I think that's really cool. And one thing that keeps kind of like circling around in my mind is something that you said that only 2% of the marine food is coming from the ocean. So like, all I can think of is like ocean based food. So can you tell me how that's divided? I mean, it's interesting because, of course, when we think about freshwater, you would think about we're here in Idaho, and there's all sorts of freshwater trout. Right. So there are lots of beautiful freshwater fish. They're eating freshwater shrimp and things like that, that now actually can be raised in a way that's completely responsible and sustainable. And when we talk about these multi-tropic systems, they're regenerative, which we know that we can't just sustain because we're in such a deficit. We have to regenerate and give back. That's the real opportunity in all of these waterways is to be able to contribute back, to become in contribution to something instead of it being consumed. And I think that's going to be the trick to changing public opinion around blue foods. There are 3 billion people on the planet that rely on blue foods as their only source of food each and every day in the world. There are a billion that rely on it as their only source of income. So now start to look at as the planet's population increases, the estimate is by 2050, we will actually have 10 billion people on the planet. But the part of the stat that most people don't know is that 4 billion will be on the African continent. So now I start to look at food systems that have already really been depleted and vulnerable. And you think about COVID and all of the costs increasing and things that are really making famine issues much worse when we look at Africa particularly. What's interesting about Africa is that as the weather changes, and it is, and the droughts come into play, and they've been so dependent on land-based animals, they're going to have what's called a coastal migration. And the coastal migration, because the ocean is 
the last remaining wild food source, right? People go out, they fish for what they're going to eat today, and they bring it back home and they eat it and they don't have to pay anything for it, right? And to a certain extent, even now, we have a consumptive entitlement to ocean wild resources. What's going to happen now, what's happening now on the ground is that we're teaching people how to raise tilapia because tilapia has very little inputs. It actually is a heritage fish, which means they're used to eating it. You're not bringing in corn where they haven't ever eaten it before, and it can be sold inexpensively to feed villages across the continent. The great part about it, too, is that between that and catfish, the majority are women farmers. So between seaweed and catfish and tilapia, most seaweed farmers are women worldwide. So we're also bringing equity and balance to the food system as we grow it into the future. That's absolutely amazing. And I really love that aspect of it because environmental issues don't exist in a vacuum, right? They exist alongside every other societal injustice and woe that is plaguing humanity as we know it, right? And so solutions that our environmental solutions also have to take into account all of these other aspects of what's happening in the world. And so the fact that this is bringing equity to women-owned farms is really kind of incredible to me. I also think it's really important to remember that we have to honor heritage and place. Right. Most food system solutions are looking from a Western lens. So when I think about where, for example, we talk when we talk about food systems and I say to you, what do you think is the most important thing in your mind prior to talking to me that um, <laughs> you thought was the number one solution to being able to have a greener, more climate-friendly planet as it related to our food system? What would you say? Corn. Or plant-based. Yeah. Right? That like, I mean, everybody talks about and maybe cultivated right. meats, lab-based. So here's some amazing statistics. We know that to raise a cow, one pound of beef is 10 times the carbon emissions than actually raising a fish. So that's a fact. So if we raise a fish that's lower on the food chain or something even further down the food chain with no inputs like seaweed or bivalves, it's even less. A plant-based burger is five times the carbon emissions than a fish. Wow. We are not going to have, again, enough land or resources, but we can manage the waters while we're figuring out all the other solutions. So I kind of look at my role as we're going to figure out how to feed people while the other solutions are coming to fruition. Because a lot of times, I mean, what happens when there is famine? There's war. There's migration. There are so many catastrophic issues around that. So if we can rapidly, for example, build a more resilient food system in India, There are now what are called seaweed villages, where there are women that are actually helping to teach villages how to grow seaweed so that then they can produce, have a better, more resilient food system around their local area. I also think it's important to note that there's more fish and seafood both produced and harvested by small artisanal fisheries and artisanal farms than anything else. So while you may not be comfortable with a great big commodity salmon farm that brings the salmon to you in your grocery store and you're thinking, forget all of aquaculture, the reality is most of this is done through small heritage farms and fisheries that have been doing this for thousands of years thousands of years. I mean, the genius of even in the U.S., the Hawaiian Islands, where they actually would fish, but they knew how hard that was. And sometimes you couldn't find the fish. And they started building out these fish pond systems thousands of years ago, created nutritional security for them. 
And so these are the things that are happening where we can take this chain of well-being from our history and our heritage and start applying it to the future as it relates to blue foods in order to be able to really contribute to the food system as we look to the future. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that that I keep hearing you talk about is resilience, right? Because we know as I mean, even if we had a perfect solution to uh, greenhouse emissions today, we know that we have already drastically affected the climate and it will be different over the next 50 years than it has been for the last thousand years, right? So there will be changes in our climate system and we don't really know exactly where or how things are going to be affected, which is why we really need to focus on this resilience aspect of our food production, right? Because there's going to be more people and we're going to be living in a world where you don't always know what your average rainfall is going to be like. That's going to shift, right? So instead of relying on one food source that if that source is interrupted, now we're talking about a famine for 2 billion people, having this diverse, resilient food system in place is really the best way to make sure that everybody has what they need and we're not contributing to these other societal woes. And we also have a small window. So if I'm in the United States, for example, we eat less fish and seafood than almost the top 10 other industrialized nations. We only eat about 17 pounds of fish and seafood per capita per year. We eat 35 pounds of avocado and over 100 pounds of beef. So per year. So we have this moment, right, where if we even look closer to home, where we can build out these systems. Right now, we're 24th in the world in aquaculture production. Because coastal communities don't want to farm off the coast and they don't want to, it's a NIMBY thing. They don't understand the science and they don't understand the importance. And so what happens is you've had coastal communities that have changed dynamically. So what's happened with climate change is you'll have a hurricane or something affect a community. The insurance is taken out of the mix, right? Insurance gets canceled. You get wealthy landowners that can come in and buy up those coastal lands. They build their homes. They can rebuild them whenever they want with whatever happens. And now you've shifted this shape of a heritage fishing community. And those people are going to have one point of view. And it's happening. It's already happening. They have one point of view, which is, I don't want to look at the farm off of the coast of my house. Yep. Right. In Washington state alone, 937 licenses to farm oysters, one of which was over 100 years old, was denied by a judge because an organization came together, which was funded by these coastal community landowners that then gave this false information to the judge, was kind of able to create this false narrative. And then their concessions, their licenses were not granted. So That's I would insane. suggest that as warming affects their waters, and they're looking off their houses, at mur- if their houses even exist anymore, at murky water, and they're looking for food, all of a sudden you're going to wish that oyster farmer was in business. So what happens if we start to build better legislative policy around aquaculture? We have great fishery management in the United States, but if we can balance what we try to pull from wild stocks and supplement with farmed, we farm everything else right? We farm everything else in our food system, but somehow we want to eat wild fish. Right. But if we say, look, we're already eating more farmed fish in the United States than we ever have, but 90% of our fish and seafood is imported. 
So we import most of our fish and seafood. We're not producing enough. If we get into any sort of a food crisis, we don't have it local, and we're not building communities in the interior of our country, vulnerable communities that are eating fish and seafood and that have access to these foods. So if you want to look at a food desert, it's not just about vegetables. It's even worse when it comes to kids in vulnerable communities having access to omega-3 rich fish and seafood. So those things are important. The other thing that's important is that when we rewild our coastal waters, so meaning we grow these kelp beds back and things, it actually mitigates the effect of hurricanes and storms as they make their way towards land because they actually will slow down. So we have work to do because we've clear-cropped in order to have beautiful beaches and beautiful coves to swim in and things. We've clear-cut a lot of this. Which leaves them perfectly open to all of that wave action that isn't, you know, the physical motion of those water molecules are not stopped on their way to shore. And that's this huge benefit that every offshore, I mean, it could be coral reefs, it can be kelp beds, it can be any offshore service area ecosystem. It saves so much money in storm damages if you have these offshore and then they're food producers and then they're job producers, right? There's this whole ladder it all up. I'm telling you right here, the blue foods are here and they're not going anywhere. You know, um, I started my career out really trying to figure out what was going on with the water farmer. I was a fourth generation Coloradan who had been not raised on a ranch, but had seen my family pass this ranch, cattle ranch on from generation to generation. I got it, what the hands of the farmer looked like, what the hands, the blistered, calloused hands of the rancher looked like. The water farmer doesn't look any different. Yeah. He's off on that boat with his family trying to do that work to feed himself and his community. And one of the amazing participants in the conference this week is a third generation family farmer from the Arctic Circle, Quare Arctic. And they started that farm to build better economy around an island of 80 people in the Arctic that were not making their living any longer on their fishery. Right. This is smart food policy. And while cultivated meat and plant-based will be part of the solution, mostly in the Western world. I have this dream where you'll go, you'll go to a sushi restaurant and you'll sit down and you'll order and there'll be this beautiful piece of wild type cultivated salmon. Maybe it's by itself a little piece of sashimi, right? Lab-based. You'll sit down. You might have one of my friend's um, plant-based seafood company popcorn shrimp that's sliced and put in a rice paper roll. You will have delicious farmed fish. Maybe it's um, clean fish or another or ideal fish, I mean, that's raising beautiful branzino. And then you will have a piece of wild fish, but it's probably going to be smaller, I hope it's going to come from a, from a protected area where the marine sanctuary created abundance to the fishery around it and where fishers are, are actually fishing it in the right way. So imagine a table that looks like that with that kind of equity and then also creates access to all of the other people like the Senegalese fisher who can only go out each day and fish for his dinner. Yeah. Absolutely. I would love to see that happen. And I think it's going to happen. I think we're well on our way to that. Oh, it's not It's not if, it's when. Yeah. <laughs> so we can all keep talking about this. But what I need today is investment. We need to make sure that every time somebody talks about food, they're adding blue food to the conversation. I was part of a conversation with Governor Newsom in the state of California, and they were talking about what's California's – and. I mean, a state that's very progressive, right? What's California's climate change plan going to be? And here is one of the most important coastlines in the United States, and blue foods were not even on the table. 
That's crazy. So I, the way we feel is we have to amplify. Fed by Blue is doing that with a number of its programs, Impact, a docu-series um, that's going to come out next year. And what we want to do, like you are, like the forum is doing, is really amplifying the message and then putting focus on groups like the Blue Food Assessment of Stanford, where 200 scientists are getting all that science I've been spewing out to you, making sure it's right. So we have a solid foundational platform to have a conversation where we're not trying to grow seafood consumption in general. We're trying to talk about responsibly sourced blue foods and the contribution that they can make at the table of the future of food. Yeah, absolutely. So I imagine we can't really talk about blue food with also bringing up the issue of overfishing. And I'm just wondering, did overfishing have any kind of role to play in making blue foods and farming it and doing it on a smaller scale? Did that have anything to play with starting Fed by Blue? Or was it more of we see a lack of food and people need to learn how to feed themselves and do this and that. And that's kind of more how it got started. It's such a good question. So there are 4.6 million fishing boats out every single day that are commercial fishing our ocean. That is not a sustainable no. circumstance. No. But I started this with Andrew Zimmerin, um, a, a relatively famous uh, – he's a chef and he's a member of the – he's actually an ambassador to the UN Food Forum. But he also has like six shows in production. He did Bizarre Foods. He was the guy that traveled all over the world. He's Emmy Award winning. If you haven't seen What's Eating America, it's an extraordinary series about the issues with our food system in the U.S., Five years ago, maybe even longer now, we started to talk about the fact that why was everybody still talking about farmed versus wild? You know, just like you can farm a chicken well, you can farm a chicken badly. You can farm a lettuce green well, lettuce well, and you can farm lettuce badly. How is it that every time I'm having a conversation about aquaculture, everybody tells me they won't eat farmed fish? Yeah. It's like shocking to me. So it came out of that. What ultimately happened was that we started to have a conversation Andrew has an award-winning production company. And so out of the conversations about the fact that we needed a mass media moment, that we felt that if there was a global series, then we could do a wraparound impact campaign around it to make true sustainable change. We were very lucky. My co-founders, uh, Jill Kaufman Johnson and, and Catherine Breyer, helped me fund the initial project. Then, as soon as everything was wrapped around, then we went to another fish farmer who actually was raised in Maine, who had been fishing his whole life, and then went on to Hollywood to be the most prolific 13-time Emmy Award-winning producer, writer, and director for series like The Undoing, Big Little Lies, Ally McBeal. His name is David E. Kelly. And David E. Kelly decided that he was so worried about what was going on in the ocean. And as a fisher, seeing the fact that salmon populations were going down, and he said, as the salmon go, we go. Meaning that the ecosystem is so important and all of the things that the salmon do, its place in the ecosystem is so important that as soon as the salmon die, we die, basically. And his answer to that was investing in aquaculture. 
So David E. Kelly, believe it or not, in addition to being an executive producer on our series, <laughs> is the largest trout producer in the United States. Oh, wow. wow. He actually farms here in the state of Idaho. Tomorrow night, you're going to eat his fish, River and Trout. And it is in the tins. So if anybody wants to find it at home, it's in the Fishwife tins. Um, and it's sort of our mission to say, we have to have this mass media moment. We're going to work in 163 countries, giving solutions on the ground with our work. We have over 20 advisory board members that are from the Environmental Defense Fund, World Wildlife Fund, and others. So we're all coming together, no industry, no industry dollars, but all coming together to really amplify this importance and make sure that it really is getting its due as we have these food system conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Why do you think it is? Because when I was younger, I remember like farming fish kind of just then coming to the forefront of like what people were talking about. And I feel like at first people were like, oh, this is so great. Like we can farm fish and like, you know, it's more sustainable and this and this. And then, like you said, now people are like, oh, well, I won't eat like farmed fish. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, in every food system. So if we go all the way back to the 70s, the reason why there were GMO foods was because literally the government came out and said, we have a food security risk. We're not producing enough of our own food and we've got to be able to do it faster. So when you look at GMO crops, pesticides, all of kind of that Monsanto age came out of this one sort of product that was where we don't have food security, we're going to make this proclamation and we're going to change the way the U.S. produces food. And we we in the United States have a lot of impact across the planet, right? We cannot ever, ever discount that. So then we started to see poor farming practices in corn. We started to see poor rearing practices with pork, right? Aquaculture at scale is relatively new. So I look at it as kind of like, you know, with corn, like we went off to college, we went partying, we had a really good time, but at some point we had to graduate and like grow up and get a real job. And that's kind of where things are coming back, right? The pendulum swung from, we don't have enough food, we're going to have this huge issue. It swung all the way over to, let's produce it as fast as we possibly can. And now the center balance is, we have to do it better, we have to think about soil, we have to think about regeneration. In the 80s, that's what happened with aquaculture. All of a sudden, you had a lot of companies getting involved. The Chinese mainly drove this around poor aquaculture practices. But then what happened was it grew across the planet, Chile, places in Canada, others that had poor aquaculture practices. But while they were doing that, they were also doing research and science around genetics and around technology. And so all of a sudden what happened was it went to college, right? And it made all those mistakes. And now it's starting to get that stuff right off of years of innovation and science. There's a great example, Google. They have their whole X program, right? That's looking at what the greatest innovations are. They have Title X. And Title X is AI technology that's collecting data on farms on the water so that there's ocean mapping and projection. The sites wow. are placed right. They can actually on Quarry Arctic Salmon Farm, our third generation farmer, they have technology where they can actually read the fingerprint of a salmon on the top of their head that scans it and then they can actually rear it 
for each individual and understand nutrition. It actually can take all of the water chemistry. It can count the fish. It can count the growth. It can know what the sizing is. This is all coming out of these unbelievable technological advances and systems now that are on the farms. Feed is the same way. Feed no longer is depletive of oceans. If you're a responsible water farmer, even with fin fish, your feed inputs are things like micro and macro algaes. So Quarry Arctic has more omega-3s than any salmon farmed or wild. Wow. The only one in the United States to have more long-chain omega-3s in order to qualify for the American Heart Association Red Check Shield program. So that's fighting nutritional injustice right there. Right. You can get your weekly allowance of omega-3s in one serving. Wow. Which you know by your fish oil or the algae, which is bad for the environment, to harvest krill and algae to be able to ha take it as right. a supplement that you actually absorb it and digest it more efficiently. So you're keeping those omega-3s in, which you don't produce on your own. You have to have them for brain development, concentration, fighting heart disease, fighting cancer. And so it's this little component in the feed where they didn't have to use feeder fish because originally foraged fish were used to feed other fish in farms. Yeah. You don't have to depend on those any longer. We can use these fantastic innovations like these natural macroalgaes that are produced. It's There's so much to talk about in this, but the point is, is that it's one part of a feed component that's now no longer depletive to the ocean. Where before, farming feed components were usually the number one thing people talked about. Yeah. They didn't like the poopy waters, but they really didn't like the fact that 90% of foraged fish populations have been decimated because of aquaculture in the 80s and 90s. We don't need it anymore. Yeah. And that's, you know, you have to do things to figure out what doesn't work and what is causing a problem. And as long as we're actively investigating the system with the intent to improve the system so that it gets better and better each cycle... You know, that's what it's all about is constantly looking for something that sucks a little bit less than what we have right now, right? You're just trying to get the next best thing so that we can get to a place where our solutions are really, truly regenerative, beyond sustainable. The the interesting thing, too, is that like in the case of farming finfish, and again, it's usually the salmon people get upset about, so let's just throw ourselves right into that mix right away. The improvements have been astounding. The, the media may love to play up the bad things, if there's an escape off of the coast of Puget Sound, well, that farmer was not a sustainable farmer and the state of Washington should have never given him that license. That's the reality. But when you look at a farm that has truly, truly like off of the coast of New Zealand, there's an incredible farm called Oraking where it's smaller densities, smaller amounts in the pen. There are less fish in those pens than they school in in the wild. I mean, again, the feed component. In the old days, they would take 10 pounds of foraged fish, meaning they would go out and harvest out Throw of the ocean. Out, they catch those fish, grind them up into fish meal and fish oil, make them into pellets, and feed them on the farm. And what they called that was the fish in, fish out ratio. So for every 10 pounds you took out of the ocean, you got one pound of salmon out of the farm. Wow. Completely unbalanced just because we have this love of salmon, right? Nowadays, with more contributive resources in the feed, it's below one to one. Wow. And in the next 
five years and 10 years, we'll use insect proteins. We will use wood proteins, believe it or not, because the protein level of even sawdust is the same and the fish actually can eat that. I always equate it to like a meatless Monday. Fish don't need all, we've been also carnivores for our whole existence, but we're learning how to eat, you know, with less dependency on animal proteins. Same is true for the fish. What matters is the nutritional balance, their health and well-being, right? So that they're living a good, healthy life on the farm and that the ecosystem around it, the marine mammals, the whales, everything that's a surrounding that farm, if we're talking about ocean farming, is thriving as well. So all we're doing, again, is I can't stress enough, ocean production and ocean protection, right? So quarry will harvest and then they fallow the whole area. Just like you would fallow land mm -hmm. in and order to be able to let it regenerate. Yep, mm -hmm. absolutely. Exactly. And there will be, I mean, insect proteins are most likely not going to be for human consumption, at least not in the Western world, but they're great for feed. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's going to be very exciting to see as the feed companies get more innovative. You know, there's a fantastic two women that are in Atlanta that actually have a company called Wonder Grubs. And they are astounding. Two black women that came up with this company as a component feed model, Grubs, for aquaculture. What? Wow. wow. <laughs> In Atlanta, and as aquaculture grows in the United States, then there'll be these people that are producing the feed locally. And then we're back to this idea of having a resilient, decentralized food production system that doesn't rely on one monocrop or one particular input that could be crippled and therefore stop the whole system working as a whole. That's exactly right. Absolutely. Well, this easily could go on for like another six hours, and I'm, I guess we're just going to have to have you back on the show. <laughs> I do have a, a couple questions right here at the end. One. This has been a question since uh, we spoke yesterday. What is your favorite blue food? Oh my! Gosh. Personally to consume. Personally to consume my favorite blue food. I'm going to go with sea lettuce. And part of the reason why is because it can be even as much as 25% of all of our foods. We can grind it up and make a pesto out of it. We can put it into our tomato sauces. It adds umami. We did an event at South by Southwest and they did a green lettuce salsa verde, a oh, seaweed wow. salsa verde. There's just so many things. I mean, I'm holding this Cho bar, a chocolate <laughs> bar that's fair trade chocolate that has Mike Graham from Monterey Bay Seaweed Company's sea lettuce. I'm so excited to try it. <laughs> it's, it and, I mean, and you won't notice it's there, but it's those little vegetative components and that enriches the flavor of the chocolate. So I would say I'm just super excited about what this is going to mean for us. And, and I think that there's so much promise and opportunity around our sea greens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what can people do to support Blue Foods and kind of get the word out there so more people know about it? How can they kind of share your mission and your goals? I think the most important thing is that one, never consider yourself a consumer any longer. It is an old phrase. It is an old, you know, language around something that is actually really troubling given how overconsumed the planet has been. And every metric we have in every single thing we do from housing starts to economy is all about consumption. We no longer want to be considered consumers. Change the language. Language matters. We want to be known to be in contribution of something better than ourselves. So pick your impact. Walk in, buy sea lettuce, put it into a salad, and know that you're contributing to healthy oceans and regeneration just with what you picked for dinner. 
Teach your children to eat these foods. Because if you don't, I don't want them to imagine in 20 years that that was the best meal they ever had was the steak they went out for with you. And they so don't and are not used to eating these blue foods. They do take a little bit to learn and understand how to eat. That's a cultural component, right? Is that you're going to eat what you were raised to eat, what your parents cooked for you. And it's really, really hard to change people's habits on the types of foods that they select once that time frame has passed through. So changing the culture oftentimes involves changing habits in children That's right. so that they grow up with these just as a sense of normalcy. That, that this love of food. And, and believe it or not, children mimic what their fathers eat. So men play an even more important role at the table in this. So start bringing those blue foods in. Look for them in the grocery store. Know where they're coming from. Ask questions. We're not trying to raise consumption of bad blue foods. We're trying to raise consumption so that that rising tide can lift all boats. And what it means is that we'll have that resiliency, whether it's better access to nutritional health, sustenance, jobs, planetary health, all of these things. What we say at Fed by Blue is hope is in the water. Hope is in the water. Love it. Absolutely love that. So final thing, if somebody listening to the show right now wanted to learn more about Fed by Blue and uh, regenerative aquaculture, where would you send them to learn more? You can go to fedbyblue.org, but in on all of the social media channels under Fed by Blue. Perfect. So if you guys are listening, you'd like to learn more, you can scroll down to the show notes, click on that link. I've dropped it right there for you guys. So you can go straight from listening to this episode to learning more about Fed by Blue. Thank you so much for sitting down with us for episode one of I don't know how many of having you on the show, but uh, (laughs) this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conservation Connection. If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and subscribe to make sure you catch every episode that we post. We'd love to hear from you. So if you want to reach out, go to our website, lastchanceendeavors.com backslash contact and shoot us an email. We love questions from our listeners. So if you heard something that you want to know more about, be sure to let us know. If you've got a minute to spare, leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts will help other conservation-minded people find the show. We'd really appreciate it. A big thanks to the people working to protect our planet and a big thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week.